Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Kolf. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Today's interview is with Preston Gorman. Preston grew up in an evangelical home in the suburbs of Texas, where he never truly felt like he belonged. In his 20s, he pursued his dream and became a firefighter and trained paramedic. During this time, Preston discovered he had a love of adventure, a high tolerance for risk, and most importantly, a calling to be of service to others. And in his mid-20s, got on a plane to Sierra Leone to volunteer as a caregiver in the middle of the Ebola outbreak. He was assigned to manage a men's ward, treating things like broken bones and tuberculosis. The Ebola patients were sequestered in a separate area of the clinic, and Preston was not asked to wear protective gear. Shortly after his stay, he passed out and woke up with a fever. Preston was diagnosed with the Ebola virus. His clothes and all his belongings were burned and placed inside a coffin made of plastic. He would brave the 20-hour flight to be treated in the United States. There, he would spend 30 days inside a plastic bubble with trained doctors caring for him in moon suits. Today, he candidly shares the details of his journey, both during and more importantly, after this traumatic event. He also talks about why he chose to stay anonymous for half a decade, his path to healing, and his lessons on both faith and family. It's important to note that we had this conversation on February 29th, at a time when bars and coffee shops were still buzzing and social distancing was not our new way of life. Preston is currently a physician's assistant at the University of Texas. We want to thank him and the thousands of healthcare professionals around the world for their brave hearts and tireless work saving lives. Here's today's interview with Preston Gorman. Preston Gorman, welcome to All the Wiser. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure to be speaking with you. Preston, how would you introduce yourself to our listeners? So I would introduce myself. I am 30 years old. I'm a physician assistant working in Austin, Texas at the University of Texas. I am from the Dallas area originally. That's where I was born and raised. Went to PA school, became a PA. And then not too long after graduation, about a year and a half, two years, I went to West Africa and then 
contracted the Ebola virus, which is what brought me to this podcast today in some ways. Tell me a little bit about your childhood. What was the backdrop of you as a boy? So I grew up in, I guess, the somewhat typical kind of American family. My mom was a nurse. My dad worked in sales, ran his own business. Our house was pretty religious growing up. My childhood was, you know, kind of simultaneously, I think, peaceful, but also very, I think, sheltered and also probably a little bit rigid in terms of our beliefs about the world. And so that shaped me, I think, as a child and as a young person. I don't know that my wiring and my nature and who I was was ever really recognized. And so I think I went most of my childhood not feeling like my emotions were ever really honored or even cared about. So there was a big aspect of kind of being an emotionally shut down person that came from that, I think. And how would you explain the rigidity around the world, that worldview? I mean, I came from an evangelical family, and I got to be careful using that term because evangelicals may get mad. My intent is not to, to anger them at all, but I think at least the particular brand that I came from, it was kind of very a black and white worldview in terms of right and wrong and good and bad and not much in between. You had like a definition of normal. You know, and anything that didn't fit that definition, we didn't even talk about. I mean, it didn't, you didn't even let it, you know, you didn't even let it in the door. So it was like kind of that American, you know, you've got your family, you've got your two or three kids, you've got your nice suburban life, and everything kind of fits in that box. You know, if, if you struggled with drug addiction or alcoholism or, something else or mental illness or anything of that nature, we didn't even talk about that. We didn't talk about problems. We didn't talk about real stuff. So what I learned to do from that is I learned to compartmentalize pieces of myself. And I learned to try to squeeze myself into a box that I probably didn't ever fit into to begin with. It actually produced a fragmentation, a little bit of a fragmentation in my own soul because I couldn't be all of who I was. And who were you? You know, it's funny. I can only answer that question in hindsight because I actually know it a lot. I could not have answered that for you then because I probably didn't know. I think I was somebody that was always deeply sensitive to those around me. I was someone also who really valued relational connection. I really, really valued people and just doing life deeply with them. That's That's probably who I always was, but I wasn't able to really understand those things about myself until much later. Today, we're going to talk about mental health, among other things. Mm -hmm. And it's something that you have lived with and managed mm -hmm. for many years. Mm -hmm. Do you remember being depressed as a child or a teenage boy? Um, I probably was, although at that time, I didn't even know that that word existed. So I probably was on some level. I don't think it was severe. There was probably some version of it there that went completely unrecognized, both by myself and probably by my parents as well. Five years ago, you survived the Ebola virus outbreak and disease, mm -hmm. one of the deadliest infections in the world. Mm -hmm. After contracting it in Sierra Leone, which really changed the course of your life. Absolutely. Where were you in your life at this point leading up to getting on the plane and going to Sierra Leone? And why were you going? So 
at that point in my life, so I was I was about a year and a half or a little more out, right out of PA school. I had found a job with uh, a couple months after graduation, was working in a family practice um, just outside of Houston, Texas, and was kind of trying to figure out the direction of my career because it was still pretty early. And I always had, even as far back as when I was even in PA school, I did have this desire. I think having come from an evangelical background, there was I think there was a part of me that wanted to do like medical missions or something in that vein. I, there was a there was a certain adventurous part of me and didn't mind maybe going into some of the hard places. And so in this desire that I had to, I guess, do something medical mission related, suddenly this this epidemic was breaking out. And I just thought, well, this seems like a potential opportunity to go do some something in that vein. And maybe it's just short term. But I knew, I just knew in my soul, so to speak, that what was going on, I knew that there was a, I don't know if you want to call it a calling or just a sense I should go, but there was just like, why well, I have this skill set. Yeah, it's a dangerous situation, but I did that for five years as a firefighter and as a paramedic. It doesn't doesn't scare me. Like I'm willing to go do this, and so I began the process of applying and figure out how that might look. and And as it turned out, Partners in Health was the organization that I ended up joining for that endeavor. How old were you at the time? I would have been 33. You arrive in Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. What do you see, and what is your day to day? reality, what's happening in this country all around you? The first sign that we were entering something was unreal was once we landed in Sierra Leone and we were getting off the plane, that's when, as you entered the, I think the airport terminal, they were checking your temperatures in and out. So they have these little thermal imaging thermometers, but they they point it at your temple. It sort of looks like a gun, but it's not. And it, it reads, without touching your skin, it reads your temperature. So they're doing that with everybody going in, which at the time... Of course, now with coronavirus, people may be used to that. But at the time, that was very bizarre. And and then they had all these signs up, all these signs everywhere showing like picture descriptions of symptoms. And if you have any of these, then report here. And there were very strict controls on who's in and who's out. There were hand-washing stations everywhere with bleach solution everywhere. So somewhat surreal to kind of – you know, you walk into that and you go, well, this – yeah, this is not – this is not home. This is not Kansas anymore. The ETU itself. So ETU stands for Ebola Treatment Unit. These were units that were set up, some of which were set up by the government, and then some of them were set up by outside organizations. The one I was associated with was originally set up by the government, but then sort of taken over by Partners in Health. But they're units specifically for the assessment and treatment of Ebola patients. And the way they do that is a patient comes in to like the triage and there's probably a list of say five or seven symptoms. And if they have X number of those symptoms, if I remember correctly, I think it was, if it was, if you had at least three of the symptoms, then you were considered a suspected case. You were admitted to this Ebola treatment unit. If you did not have any of those symptoms or you didn't have enough of those symptoms, they turned you away and then said, just go ahead and go to the regular hospital. And what is Ebola virus for those people who don't understand it in layman's terms on a high level explain what it is for those who don't know so ebola virus well a virus as opposed to a bacteria there's a difference between bacteria and virus but it is a virus that causes quite a bit of internal disruption within the body it attacks most of the organ systems 
And it's extremely infectious. So highly infectious virus. It's very easy to catch from another person. It's transmitted through bodily fluids and secretions as opposed to respiratory droplets, which it is not. And it's relatively lethal. The mortality rate, it probably depends on which source you're pulling from, anywhere between, say, 30 and 60, 70%. Although I've I'm kind of ballparking it. I think in that outbreak, the mortality was 40%, which for infectious disease is quite high. So the people you're treating, you know 40% are going to die. Yeah, possibly. That's what you're expecting or suspecting. And what precautions are in place? So, yeah, there's actually a section where all the care providers would kind of talk through their plan for when they go into the unit. And then there's a little area where you do what's called donning or you don the equipment. So there was a protocol for putting everything on appropriately. And then you had somebody checking to make sure you had it on correctly. And then there was, yeah, there was this giant red strip. And when you stepped across that line, that meant you were going into the red zone, which means you're going into where the infected patients were or potentially affected patients were. And you could not come back across that red line. There was a separate exit after you made it deliberate circle through the place, a separate place that you exited. What type of interactions are you having with the patients and what are the symptoms that you're treating and observing? We usually went in two by two. You never went in by yourself. And the symptoms we were treating were some combination of the following, either one or multiple. So fever, chills, severe nausea and vomiting, diarrhea, weakness, in some cases respiratory failure, in some cases, some secondary gut infections that people acquired while they were sick. The treatment was relatively simplified in the sense that we could not offer the range of services that you would find in a hospital in the United States. We didn't have an ICU. We didn't have the capability of life support. So we could do very basic things. If they were able to tolerate fluids, we could do oral rehydration solution. If they could not tolerate oral fluids, we could do IV fluids. We could give them Tylenol for the fever. We could give them Zofran for nausea and vomiting. Those were the basic treatments we could offer. So you've explained this is a virus that is communicable and transferred through bodily fluids. Mm -hmm. Clearly, you're around a lot of bodily (laughs) fluids based on what you're describing as symptoms that you're treating. What sort of protection do you have, you know, in clothes or in protocol from these infected or potentially infected patients? What we wore was a full body Tyvek suit. You may have seen those on TV or you may have seen pictures of them from the Ebola outbreak, but it's it's head to toe. There's even this hood that kind of comes over well, not a hood. It's it's like a like a hoodie, you know, that then comes over your head right here. And then it has a zipper that comes all the way up to your neck. And then there's actually a face shield that goes over your face. And we would either double or sometimes triple glove. And then you've got some rubber boots that you wear over that. So That was the protective gear. I want to move forward to the time at which you started developing symptoms. Mm -hmm. What were those symptoms and what do you remember about that time? So the first thing I remember, there was a, let's see, it was a Monday morning. We had our rounds that morning in the hospital and I actually fainted that morning. I just figured I was dehydrated. It was really hot over there. I was sweating a lot. 
So they, they actually, you know, let me go back to the camp. We, we lived in a little of a, we had a little tent city set up that all of us were in. And so I went back to the camp and stayed there the rest of the day. And I felt pretty weak, but I just, again, just attributed dehydration. Well, the following morning, I woke up feeling extremely hot. And I put my thermometer in my mouth and my temperature at 102.9. And that's when I called. We had sort of protocol set up if you developed a fever. And I was immediately from that point forward isolated. So that's kind of how it began. At what point did you receive a diagnosis? Did someone look you in the eyes and say, you have this virus? It was that night. I was transported to uh, the British facility for healthcare providers right there. It was about two hours away. And there was a British physician that came in that night after some blood testing. And she said, Mr. Gorman, I'm, I'm sorry. I have some bad news. Your PCR test is positive for Ebola. And what do you think at that moment? I, it felt surreal. I think, I don't know if I'm remembering this correctly because I, but my memories from that point forward are, they are a little bit foggy, but I think I remember saying to her, are you sure? Because it didn't seem believable to me. And it almost felt like a movie. Like it's almost felt out of body. Like, is this really happening? There's no way. This is like somebody else. Like this doesn't even feel real. And I also felt a fair amount of dread because I had watched patients progress through the symptoms and it wasn't so much, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. Although that probably was there too. It was more of, man, I, this is not going to be fun. I know what's coming and this is not going to be fun. Well, you've just intimately witnessed the suffering and the pain. Yes. And now someone's looking in you in the eyes and saying, get ready. Yes. I know from reading about your story and obviously the level of contagion that basically everything you own was confiscated and then burned. Yep, that's correct. Because anything you had touched. So you're told you have this virus, this deadly virus mm -hmm. with horrific symptoms. Mm -hmm. And everything is confiscated from you and burned mm -hmm. because of the contagion factor. Mm -hmm. And you have a 20-hour journey ahead in order to get back to the States and be treated at NIH. Yep. You described that as the loneliest time of your life. Walk us through that 20-hour journey and why you said it was so deeply lonely. So, I mean, the first part of the loneliness is that you're in an isolation ward by yourself. Now, the doctors kind of come in periodically to check on you, but you're still just laying there by yourself. At least I was in Africa. And there's no one to talk to. There's no one to even, you know, most experiences we have in life, you know, whether it's graduating from high school or going to college or starting your first job or maybe even getting married or having your, like the things that we go through in life typically we're experiencing them either alongside other people or someone else has already gone through it and so they can kind of coach you well i had neither of those there was no one going through it with me and no one had gone through it that i knew of anyway so there you go so from that isolation i was in in, in africa then they put me on an ambulance by myself again in the back of the ambulance for a 4 hour ride to the airfield and by yourself because no one can be around you the disease is so transmittable that you are in pain in the back by yourself correct right exactly nobody would ride back there with me the, the driver is driving but no one's going to come back there with me cuz <laughs> They don't want to catch it, obviously. So I'm by myself in the back with, you know, an IV hanging out of me and a catheter hanging out of me and, you know, just, and then just bumping along this dusty road all the way to the airfield, just, you know, hanging on for dear life and hoping that I don't die back there. And then from there, they transferred me to the plane and I lay in this plane and it's, it was probably a 16 hour flight, give or take. There were some nurses that came in and out 
taking care of me during the flight. But again, I was in a lot of physical pain. There's a lot of like muscle aches and body aches with the disease. And then, of course, the vomiting and the nausea and just wondering what's going to happen. And I, I also didn't have a watch. So 16 hours, I didn't have any way to measure the time. I'm just on this flight. I'm kind of in and out of consciousness. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know when we're going to land. I don't know how long this pain is going to last. And there were people in moon suits taking care of me. So that whole aspect of human touch and human connection completely, completely removed, which feels incredibly, incredibly alone. And you were placed in a coffin-shaped plastic bubble at that point, correct? Yes, because by the time I arrived on U.S. soil, I was too weak to walk. And so that's how they transported me, was in that plastic bubble. You arrive at the NIH. What's happening in your body at this point? medically, in layman's terms, if you will, what is happening with your body? So I was probably in the early stages of my organ system shutting down. The virus was at a pretty high level in my bloodstream by that point. And it was in the early stages of attacking multiple organs, including my kidneys, my heart, my lungs, my brain, my intestines. So medically speaking, from a layman's standpoint, my organ systems were having to endure an all-out assault from this virus. You've described the intense pain, the fear of dying, the lack of human touch and interaction that leads to loneliness. I know when you arrive, there is a doctor that says one thing, and simple as it is, it meant so much to you at that moment. Do you remember what that was? Dr. Chertow stuck his hand in the plastic bubble with the glove and said, Preston, we're here. We're going to take care of you. And and what did that mean to you? You know, it's the first time anybody had said something like that, but something about the way he said it, maybe it was, maybe it was the tone of his voice, but it was, it was so comforting, I think, to arrive on U.S. soil, my homeland, and to have one of my own people extend his care to me. Something about that was very reassuring. So the world... Media is swirling. There's this outbreak, obviously immense fear. And you're in the the heart of this storm fighting for your life. They move you in to what was also described as a bubble. And I know there was roughly 50 to 60 doctors who actively volunteer to treat you and address this around the clock and that they could only enter this bubble and what I'm going to call a full-on moon suit. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like as a human being in an environment that just seems so surreal, as if a movie? I mean, emotionally, what was, what was it like to be in that bubble surrounded by people so guarded and layered from you? You know, it, it, it didn't feel real, and, and in a way... Well, the first the, to give you some context, the first two days I was there, I wasn't very with it. I was kind of in and out of awareness. I really wasn't aware of much of what was going on. So most of the memories that I have don't begin until they took me off the ventilator. So at first, it just felt overwhelming. It felt confusing, but I didn't really care because I was in so much. I was in so much pain. All I could think about was how am I going to keep from vomiting again? That was really what was on my mind predominantly. But once once they took me off the ventilator, I would say 
I don't really actually think I was I was probably mostly dissociated. I think because I felt so much like a lab rat. And I'm not I'm not saying they intentionally treat me that way. That's I have the utmost gratitude and thankfulness and respect for how they took care of me. But because of how they have to take care of me, the, the suits and just the extreme precautions you have to take, you kind of feel like a lab rat. You feel like an experiment. I felt like an experiment. I felt like I was no longer one of the human race, and I was in survival mode. So it it, it actually felt a bit like an out of body experience. I mean, I, I think I was I think I was incredibly disassociated, which you would almost have to be because there's no way that you can absorb or feel the amount of just emotional pain that comes from that. So the natural response is to disassociate from all that and just kind of survive what you have to. And I know the director of the National Institution of Infectious Disease at the time said you were one of the sickest patients to ever be housed in the NIH unit. Mm -hmm. I also read about this period of sedation over 10 days. And at one point you started thrashing, disconnecting breathing tubes, pulling out IV lines, and blood was splashing on the moon suits of the nurses that were trying to pin you down. And from there, they changed the protocol, right, of how they put on those suits and the timing. Did you think you were dying at this point? Well, I, I was unconscious, so I can't answer that. <laughs> that episode that you're describing, I was completely unconscious because at that point, uh, after the first two days in the hospital, my breathing deteriorated to the point where it wasn't sustainable for human life. They elected to then intubate me at that time, and it was during the period of being intubated on a ventilator, which is, which is a machine breathing for me. So they have to kind of sedate you so much that you're really not even conscious. It was during that time that the episode happened. So I, I didn't even know that happened until they told me later. There was an experimental drug trial that was rushed in the wake of this crisis, and I believe it was called ZMAP. Can you explain ZMAP and the role you played in that trial during this time where you're fighting for your life? They were just beginning a trial of that. And they were beginning, I think, what, what was considered the... They had done some clinical trials before. They were just experimenting with a drug, like sort of like throwing the kitchen sink at something and seeing if it works. But this trial specifically had two arms of it, which you generally need for an effective drug trial. You have kind of the placebo arm where you don't get the experimental drug, and then you have the experimental arm where you get the experimental drug and you compare the two groups. And so when they brought me into to the hospital, they asked me if I wanted to participate in the clinical trial, and I said yes. I did not know that I was the first patient to be enrolled in that trial. And I actually randomized to the control arm. So I did not receive ZMAP. I did not receive any experimental drugs. So I became part of that control group for that study. But to me, and you, you tell me your experience, you're fighting for your life. Here's this potential drug that can help treat you. You agree to be in the trial, and then you get the lovely news that you're actually not receiving the drug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is that how you experience it? Um. Or no, am I making so – projecting? To be quite honest, I don't remember them coming and telling me that I randomized to the control group. I only remember agreeing to the trial because my memory gets – it was right when I arrived. 
And those first two days, man, things were so chaotic and I wasn't all there. I don't remember finding that out till long into my hospital stay by the time I'd already sort of stabilized. Got it. So during this time, I know your mom was sitting vigil Mm -hmm. outside this bubble. And while she wasn't allowed in, she could see you on a video screen and talk to you through a phone that they would prop up in your ear. You know, as you said earlier, you grew up in a really religious home, and I know a big part of her words to you were prayers and reading from the Bible. Mm -hmm. Your father was flying back and forth. Your girlfriend was there. Mm -hmm. What did all of that mean to you during this time? I think it was really helpful. You know, it was the only source of human contact I had, even though it wasn't in person. It was encouraging, you know, especially once I came up to the ventilator, but I was not allowed out of isolation yet. I could at least talk to them on the phone. It was encouraging. Do you remember some of the things they said or some of the things that were the most comforting? Some of it was just innocuous, benign conversation, just, you know, tell me how things were going back home. I do remember my mom reading the Psalms to me over the phone, and I found that very comforting. So after 30 days with no human contact or touch, you are released from this bubble and can touch, can be embraced and reconnected with human contact and with people you love. Mm -hmm. What did that experience feel like? Extremely liberating, but also intimidating at the same time. It was kind of like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad to have human contact. But then, oh my gosh, what do I do now? Like, what happens now? So yeah, there was two parts of me like, man, this is so much better than being in a bubble. But this is also very overwhelming. How so? Because for those people, it's over for them. It's over. But for me, it was just beginning. I had entered the ICU one person, and I was coming out another person. And very early on, I could feel that difference of, I've just been through an experience that I don't understand, and I don't know how to process this, and I'm overwhelmed with human contact because even though I need it, I don't know what to do with it, and I don't know who I am anymore. And I know that you're really happy and excited, but I don't feel happy and excited and I don't know why. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. You leave without any fanfare. Mm -hmm. And I know from being a journalist and a journalist at that time that the world's media is waiting. You could have walked out that front door and had a press conference and all the morning shows and, you know, would have been very interested in your story and experience. But you choose to be anonymous. And you don't walk out the front door. You walk out the back door. Why did you make that choice? Because something deep inside of me didn't know if I was ready to like have all that attention. Because I felt so unsettled in myself. And I felt so confused very early on, even in the first week or two. And I knew when, when Dr. Davey, Dr. Davey gave me the option. He said, we can hold a press conference or we can just kick you out the back door. I kind of asked him his opinion. He said, you've been anonymous up to this point. I might recommend going out the back door. And I just knew that all that attention, all that pressure, I, I just wasn't ready for all that. I watched it happen to Kent Brantley and some of the others. And I was like, I, I'm not in a place where I can deal with that right now. So you go back to Texas and I know... There was big celebration. You've survived. This is incredible. He's home and you're in a world of pain. The invisible wounds are, well, first of all, describe your physical transformation. So I had lost probably 30 pounds 
I looked, I mean, one of my friends told me there was a picture of me in the hospital. He said I looked like a corpse. And I couldn't walk very effectively. I had to relearn how to walk. Now, by the time I left the hospital, I could walk a little bit. But I walked like an old man walks, like kind of with a wide-based gait. My frame was just emaciated. Well, I was mostly emaciated, but then my belly was swollen because they had pumped me full of fluid. So it was just a weird look to me. My face was very gaunt. I was anemic. And I was very fatigued, like, all the time. And so there was just a huge piece of it that was just a physical recovery. But I didn't look, I didn't look very healthy when I came out of the hospital. What is that period of coming home, the weeks and months that followed? I know you went to your parents' house to heal and recover there. What was that time frame like for you? Probably the loneliest time of my life. Because what was happening was like, there was an initial very, very brief, if you want to call it euphoria, like, okay, I'm alive. But then very soon after that, within a few weeks, it was like, okay, what what now? What do you do after that? And as the months went on, as my physical body slowly healed, the invisible wounds did not. And I felt so disconnected from my loved ones. I felt so unable to connect to them or to have them connect to me. I felt so unable to even communicate the vast confusion I felt, the deep feeling of loneliness and lostness that I felt. And then I felt so much guilt and shame because I could not meet what I felt like were their expectations. Because it appeared to me that after a certain amount of time, Preston should be back to normal. And they may or may not have meant to communicate that, but that's the message I received by various and sundry of things. And so I felt this weight of, why can't I be the normal Preston anymore? And then I felt shame and guilt because I couldn't be the normal Preston. And in that shame and guilt, I would then push people away because I felt so confused. How many people died during this outbreak? I think there were like 10 or 12,000, maybe. Was there a sense of survivor's guilt? For me, yes. In fact, I remember they'd had a little party for me about two weeks after I'd come home. And I remember feeling deeply confused. The, the thought in my head was, why are we celebrating? Like, why is the narrative Preston's alive? Because the real narrative is there's still people dying over there. And so I've... Yes, I felt a lot of survivor's guilt. I know you go into a very deep depression. What did that feel like? Where are you emotionally in your head? And at one point, it's so bad that you become suicidal. Share with us what you're comfortable about that depressive episode. So I would call that period post-traumatic stress disorder. Those two are closely related, but I think this was distinctly PTSD when I look back on it. But if I can paint a picture of it, what it was like, I would say the first year or year and a half after I left the hospital, I was just a shell. I mean, like I just shell-shocked, total shell-shock. And in that period of time, the relationship with me and my girlfriend broke down. I actually, I actually broke up with her, but primarily because it appeared to me she wanted to be able to move forward with the typical things, and I, I couldn't. And I didn't know how to communicate that very well. So I, I ended that relationship, even though I probably, in the big picture of things, didn't want to. I felt so guilty for not being able to meet her needs. I'm just very, like, just kind of in a numb state most of the time. Had a few panic attacks here and there. 
it wasn't until about a year and a half to two years later, after I'd started working again and I was in Austin, I moved away from my family. I'd moved to Austin to try to restart and start working again. And in all that time, not a single person had really connected to this experience of mine. I had walked this whole time feeling unbelievably alone. And sometime in the fall of 2016, I think it all started hitting me. For the first time, I started actually processing this trauma I had been through. And as I began to process it, that brought me to the probably the lowest point I'd ever been. And that's when I was suicidal because I'd been through this massive event and I thought, no one's ever going to understand this. There's no way I can ever be normal again. I didn't want to live anymore. Were you actively suicidal? Explain the state of your ideations. I wouldn't say I ever had a formal plan, but there was a lot of ideation. There was a lot of like, man, I would just be better off dead. And like I said, there was never really a a true plan, but there was a lot of thoughts. What are the pivotal moments of healing when you... You now know you have PTSD. You're at a rock bottom with the suicidal ideation. What are some of the moments you remember that were pivotal in a positive shift specific to your road of healing? I think a couple things. So finding a therapist. I found a trauma therapist, which was incredibly, incredibly helpful. That was a big step to start digging through the layers. Just had to do a lot of counseling, digging through what had taken place. I think... Finding a, a good, solid, stable job helped. I had gone through a couple different jobs, and all of them were really not, they weren't good situations. Like, I'd been through all this chaos and trauma, and what I was desperately needing was some, some stability and security, and I, you know, couldn't quite find it. But when I finally started working UT, this, that was a very regular schedule, manageable pace, things like that, that helped. I think finding a church that resonated with me was also helpful. I also moved to a place where I was kind of doing regular community with other people and getting to know more friends. There was also a trip I took to Ecuador, and I did kind of try some ayahuasca, and that was a very helpful part, I think, as well. I read you went to AA, in spite of not being a heavy drinker, that you were drawn to Alcoholics Anonymous. Why? Yeah. So I went to that group because I knew it was a place where you could sort of deal with your problems. And so it was actually through that group that I met somebody who then connected me to the therapist. And what I sort of discovered in the group, I fit better actually in Al-Anon. So AA is for alcoholics and Al-Anon is kind of for relatives or close loved ones of alcoholics. And I discovered sort of in the process of therapy that there were there were sort of aspects of the alcoholic behavior set in my family. And so that, that was that was, you know, one of the pieces of my recovery among many. But that's yeah, that's kind of how I I went to that group because I knew it was a place where you could find help. You've talked about how this not only changed your relationship with your family, it also changed your relationship with your faith. Can you explain those two things? Well, it changed my relationship with my family because it it ruptured it so completely. It created so much disconnection that to this day, there's there's no relationship there. I mean, like literally, there's zero communication between myself and my family and hasn't been for a couple of years. Why? Because I think after I moved to Austin and I was processing what had taken place, 
And I realized that though physically they were there for me, emotionally they were not. They were not. And there were some things done or said that were uh, that I don't have time to get into that, that were harmful to me, that were not helpful in my recovery. And so when I finally began to process all of the things that had taken place, I got very angry and I had a lot of questions. And when I asked those questions, they didn't want to hear them. They just wanted to hear, hey, it's over. It's done. It's in the past. It doesn't matter anymore. And I was like, no, I need to understand this. And there came a point where I realized that engaging with them and talking with them and going home was like ripping the Band-Aid off and bleeding all over again because it reminded me of all the emotional disconnection that happened and their inability and in some cases, unwillingness to really try to understand and meet me where I was at. And because of that, I decided it's going to be nothing until I'm healed enough to engage with this. So that's how it changed the relationship with my family because I became aware of what my real needs were and the fact that they had no capacity or maybe willingness to meet me there. Do you hope to one day repair that relationship? I do. I really do. It's going to take a lot of work, probably on both sides, but I think that possibility is there. Well, I hope that happens for your family. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a part of the the journey. You obviously grew up in a really religious home and environment. How did this experience change your relationship to your faith? It changed it because I could no longer compartmentalize. And I could no longer even compartmentalize the way I viewed God. Because before, I believed in a God who was emotionally distant. And I engaged in my faith in such a way that was emotionally disconnected. It was all head and no heart. It was just ideas or maybe theologies or some concoction of those. It was, to some extent, not very tender towards very human needs. And so it changed my relationship to God and viewing him as someone who actually cares about all of me and not just the ideas that I believe. It made me a more compassionate person because it helped me to see that people are made up of far more than just their external characteristics. There's a lot of things going on inside that need to be tended to. And To not do that and to not take into account a person's emotions, their internal experience, some of maybe the psychological or emotional wounds that they may have, to to not address those things is not compassionate in my view now. Did it change your relationship with your own mortality? Yes. Part of the emotional pain that I experienced was that in facing my own death, I can no longer now live with any illusions. I can't afford to. And I'm not able to because it's like I've seen the other side. And whereas my peer group, which would be people in their 30s, they still have a lot of illusions in their life still. They still have a lot of naivety about the end. I have no such naivety. I have no such illusion. I'm well aware of the fragility in which I exist and how dependent I am on God for the sustenance of my life in a way that most people aren't. And so there's a certain soberness I have about life that probably a lot of people don't my age because I've come face to face with leaving this earth. It's a really interesting and timely moment for us to have this conversation because of the coronavirus and all of the uncertainty and fear and unknown surrounding that. Does that trigger you when there's outbreaks related to public health? Does it stir up anything? Um, It does a little bit. It's not 
overwhelming, but it, yeah, it does trigger it a little bit. You just recently went public and sharing your story with the Washington Post, less than two months from from us doing this interview today. Why did you choose to speak openly at this point? I guess the easiest way to say is I just knew I was ready. I'm not entirely sure why, but I just, it's like I'd carried this burden for four or five years and I, I needed to just open with it, live out in the open. Has it been cathartic or healing for you? What's your experience been in sharing? You know, it's kind of been a, a, a dual response. I mean, I, I think a part of me feels relieved and it is kind of cathartic and I'm glad I did it. And then on the other hand, there's an interesting side to it that even with that story coming out, there's still people that have a hard time understanding and getting it. And and what it's kind of helped me face up to that's hard to face is that there's probably very, very few people that can actually understand, almost none. Even when they read the story, they may not be able to really feel the gravity of what I've had to walk through. Because what I hear you say in our conversation before this and today is that with all of the drama and high stakes in those 30 days and the infection, the real pain, the trauma, the PTSD, the invisible wounds would go on for years and years and years. And as a society, we want the tidy bow. Yeah. Meanwhile, you're silently in a world of pain. And if we could reframe both from um, the healthcare system and also as friends and family, loving people who are going through PTSD, whether it's serious illness or grief. And it's a conversation that's come up a lot on this podcast. And I think it's one that that you are living and have lived and are now talking about. Yeah, the, the society and even my family, they wanted the nice tidy bow. And I, that's what produced most of the pain is that they wanted that nice tidy bow. There was not going to be a nice tidy bow. And... Yeah, you're right. It's there's this ongoing thing. I, I for me, I don't know what the end game is. But there are wounds from that experience that still exist today. They're not as acute. They don't overwhelm me like they once did, but they're still there. They may be there for a lifetime. I don't know. But it's extremely difficult for people to understand that. What do you know about yourself today that you didn't know before all of this happened? Well, I know that I'm a deeply sensitive person that has an incredible capacity for empathy. I did before, but now I have a lot more, and now I know that about myself. I know that I, what I most deeply value is connection, true, honest, emotional connection with others. What do you hope people take away when they hear your story? I hope what they take away is that just because someone looks okay on the outside doesn't mean they're okay on the inside. And especially if they've been through some kind of trauma, like there may be part of them that's not okay. And that sometimes you have to be really careful how you talk to that person and be careful what expectations you might put on them. Because if they feel your expectation to just be normal, they're not going to feel accepted for where they are. And realize, I want people to realize that healing is, is a process. It's not a destination. Sometimes it has an endpoint, and sometimes it doesn't. But it's a process, and everybody's process looks differently. Where do you hope to be in your life 10 years from now? Um, that's actually a hard question to answer because a lot of my journey has been so focused on healing that I 
haven't had a lot of thoughts about the future. But if I had to pick, I'd say I hope to be a more settled place in my life. I hope to be married. I hope to have children. I'd love to have a few acres out in the country somewhere. I can see it. (laughs) Thank you for your honesty, for your vulnerability, and for your wisdom. I think in sharing your story, you have a lot of gifts to give to other people. So it's an honor. Thank you. Thank you. Before we wrap this up, our Sunday morning conversation, we're going to do a little thing called rapid fire. Are you ready? Yes, ma'am. Good Southern boy calling me ma'am. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm married to one, so okay. I get it. All right. Favorite song? Oh, geez. Um, might be Goodbye in Her Eyes by Zach Brown. Your greatest superpower? Being able to know what's going on in somebody else before they know. Your biggest vice? Hmm. Give me a second. <laughs> Bourbon? <laughs> on the rocks. All-time favorite movie? Lord of the Rings. Secret talent? I can play a trumpet. Favorite quote? I believe it was William Wallace. Every man dies, but not every man really lives. That's a good one. All right. Thank you again, Preston. We loved having you and are really excited to share this conversation with our listeners. And I just appreciate you and your time. So thank you so much. Thank you for doing it. Appreciate it. Have a great Sunday, Preston. You too. Bye. Bye. Preston chose the Refuge Ranch as his charity of choice. The ranch is home to 48 underage girls who have been rescued from sex trafficking. I have not been there in person, but I have seen the pictures online and it is absolutely beautiful. They built this healing home and campus on 50 green acres outside of Austin, Texas. I just learned that child sex trafficking is the fastest growing crime in the world. All of the girls living on the ranch are under the age of 19, and each one is provided with an individualized plan to rest, restore, and build a life to their fullest potential. We will have a link in our show notes, and you can learn more about them at therefugeaustin.org. I definitely encourage you to check it out. I see a lot of charity websites and this one is pretty inspiring and the pictures are just gorgeous. Be well, take care, and thank you again to Preston and to all the brave healthcare workers on the front lines. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick. And our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read our show notes, or get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast. Send us a note. We would love to hear from you. And as always, thanks for listening. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 
Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.